We live in a broken world, and we are broken people. Where can we find healing? Nehemiah faced unimaginable challenges and opposition, and yet through perseverance and faith, he accomplished great things for God. Like Nehemiah, the difficulties we encounter may seem impossible to overcome, but God gives us the grace to accomplish what he calls us to do. Exercising our faith in God is the beginning of the path to redemption. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, We've been uh, in the fall here looking at the story of Nehemiah in the Old Testament and kind of working through the story. And I think you've seen how every chapter uh, has great application and significance uh, to our lives today. And they really, these scriptures so inform our relationship with God, even in Christ, in, uh, in amazing ways. But just a, a little bit of context, you imagine these folks, thousands and thousands of folks that converge on Jerusalem. They rebuild a wall in 52 days, which gives security to the city. They uh, have, have gathered together, they've begun reading the word, reacquainting themselves with the story of God. They've discovered that God's got a purpose and plan for their life and that if they would just bend their knee and humble themselves before God, that, that God would cause them to flourish. And so there's this great gathering and, and uh, they spent a quarter of the day reading the word, a quarter of the day in confession. And, and we saw last week how there's this revival mindset that takes over in Jerusalem. And that's where we find ourselves this morning, we're right at the very, very last verse, very end of Nehemiah chapter 9, if you're following in the scriptures or on your, uh, on your Bible app. But here's where we are. Overwhelmed now by the sheer goodness of God, awestruck by the supremacy of God as their creator, humbled by the rehearsal of God's track record as the Levites chronicled God's unrelenting faithfulness. They're humbled by the track record of God's goodness and faithfulness. They're quieted by the overwhelming mercy and grace of God. When they considered their sin, they became erratic and and needed to be calmed. And and they were calmed and quieted by God's grace and mercy. They are now fully convinced in every regard of God's righteous character. That in everything that has happened, God acted rightly and justly and in a holy way. And on the tail end of all of this, we read these ominous words in Nehemiah 9.38. In view of all of this, we're making a binding agreement in writing on a sealed document containing the names of our leaders, Levites, and priests. This is religion. And this is what religious people do. They make vows and oaths and agreements and they double down uh, to do better going forward. I wonder, have you ever been so bold as to make a vow before God? You know, last week, Nehemiah 9, we saw how the Levites, they chronicled Israel's history of failure and unfaithfulness. They, you know, no matter how good of a thing God did. No matter how great a sign or a wonder in Israel's history God worked, no matter how dramatically God intervened, 
no matter how exceedingly profound the expression of God's mercy or deliverance or protection or guidance or provision, no matter how clear-minded God's people became of God's unrelenting faithfulness, we saw very clearly how God's people are prone to failure. They try to escape the gravitational pull of failure, but they keep coming down to earth. They can't escape failure. In Nehemiah 9, just to reemphasize, you have painted, I think, one of the grandest portraits of the goodness and greatness of God found anywhere in Scripture. It is a grand, sweeping, beautiful panorama of God's faithfulness. But the beauty of it, the brushstrokes of the brilliance of God's mercy and grace play off the utter darkness and depravity and the failures of man. Those dark points of depravity make the bright light of God's brilliance shine even brighter. And you, you have this vividness to this portrait in Nehemiah 9. And so God, you, 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 uh, you know, light, 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 right, played off of but they, 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 darkness, 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 failure, failure, failure. And these phrases don't just describe God's people in the past. They describe us often. They became arrogant. They became stiff-necked. They wouldn't obey your commands. They refused to listen, to remember your works. They would appoint and follow ungodly leaders instead of following you as Lord and King. They would erect idols. And when good things happen in their life, they would credit the idols for their good fortunes while blaspheming your holy name, God. They shrugged their shoulders when you gave warnings. When you sent prophets forth, you killed them. They kept doing what was evil in God's sight, and they became wicked in every regard. They, 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 the darkness, the failure is in vivid detail, juxtaposition contrasted with God's goodness and faithfulness and righteousness and, and unrelenting love and mercy. In view of all that, why does this group of people now decide to make a binding agreement before God? Think about this. I mean, do you really think you're going to be exceptional after that replay of history. Do you imagine that you're going to be more sincere, more noble, more trustworthy, more faithful than what your ancestors had been? Isn't it just like human nature? Isn't it just like our religious nature to think that we're going to be of better character going forward than what we were going backwards? We're going to do better than those before us. Sometimes we sit in judgment, convincing ourselves, you know, uh, had, had we been there in that time or that place, we would have acted nobly and rightly, and we wouldn't have hardened our hearts or had stiff necks or, or followed those idols, or, you know, we would have been different had we been, you know. In Jesus' day, even as they plotted to kill God's one and only son, Jesus, who God sent into the world, He'd sent prophets, but now he'd sent his son. Even as Jesus stood in their midst, the Jewish leaders boasted that they would have never have killed God's prophets had they been around back in the day. But Jesus says, 
yet you're going to kill his son. And they're like, what are you talking about? You're crazy. You're, you know, yet you're going to kill. You're not doing, you're doing one worse than your ancestors, Jesus tells them. You know, how is it that when you look at our history, the history of God's people, a history of arrogance, stiff nakedness, you know, a failure, how can we be so arrogant and full of ourselves to stand before a holy and righteous God and say, oh, you know, in light of all their failure, we're not going to fail. That's essentially, and to bind yourself with a curse. Just take a look at Nehemiah chapter 10. I know there's a lot of names. You read chapter 10, 11, and 12. There's a lot of names. And you might be tempted to do like one of those flyover things. It's like, oh, names. But if you read a little closer, don't fly over so quickly. These people were willing to have their names written down, and they're written right in your Bible. You know, if you're going to have your name written down, don't have it written down about because you'll be remembered forever. The Word of God endures forever. These people have, have had their name written down, not just in history, but in eternity. The Word of God endures forever. They have their names written down to be forever remembered and held accountable to what they're about to do. In Nehemiah 10.1, Nehemiah has his name written down. And then follows the name of every priest, every Levite, every leader in Jerusalem. And you can follow that. There's like 28, 5, 28 verses or whatever, right? It's a whole list. So imagine here at Lakeside, we start putting names down, all right? Uh, Mr. Hampton, uh, we'll put your name down there. And Colby, we'll put your name down. We'll just go right. In Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 28, wasn't just the leaders and Levites and Nehemiah, the rest of the people, priests, Levites, yes, gatekeepers, musicians, the worship team people, right? The temple servants, the, everyone who separated themselves from the surrounding peoples for the sake of the law of God, who uh, together had come into Jerusalem with their sons and daughters. This is very important. Everyone who's able to understand, that's who makes a covenant or a pledge, is those who are of age to understand, to, to comprehend. Sometimes that might be a, a very young person, six, seven, eight, nine, might be somebody 11, 13, might be an adult, might be somebody later in the life. Everyone who understands is in this. And it says in verse 29 that all these folks now joined their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and they bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, to obey carefully all the commands, all the regulations, and all the decrees of the Lord our God. Now, our Bible sometimes, uh, you know, uh, it has the word oath mentioned there, but look at the footnote. They're binding themselves under a curse and an oath. It's not just an oath, positively. They're also willing to accept the negative ramifications if they don't live up to their oath. And everyone's doing it. Everyone of any age, of any understanding, sons, daughters, all the way from the bottom to the top and the top to the bottom, everyone is in this moment doing this. And as I read that, I let me ask you a couple questions. Like, first... Would you ever dare make a vow before a holy and righteous God, binding yourself 
with a curse should you fail. Would you ever stand before a holy and righteous God and make a vow, binding yourself with a curse should you fail? Would you ever have the audacity to stand before a holy and righteous God and essentially say, may I be damned if I fail, which is the proper use of the word. May I be cursed, may I be condemned, may I be damned if I fail. Would you ever have the audacity to stand before, especially, you know, this is Nehemiah chapter 12, you know, and it's following Nehemiah 9, which is a chronicle of all the failure, and and now you're going to put yourself in that place. Nehemiah 12 is the agreement that they make. And uh, this agreement is unique to Israel in this time and place, but here's some of the elements of their agreement, their vow. We won't give our daughters to foreign men in marriage. We won't take foreign women for our sons. Now, the issue there is not becoming unequally yoked. When for love, uh, you give away everything, including your faith and your religion and your devotion and your doctrine and your right living, right? They were giving away everything for love to enter into political alliances. Marriage was a lot larger than just love. It was also a political. But essentially, you had people for these marriages, they were willing to sell themselves into idolatry, into spiritual adultery, and all these things. Uh, And when you become yoked to somebody that's not a a believer or that doesn't share your values, soon uh, a little yeast works through the dough of your family and you find yourself more like them, not them more like you. And so there is a very big concern in Israel about the being unequally yoked. And there's a concern about that in the New Testament as well. But some of the other vows, we will not do business on the Sabbath. You know, we got busy and we stopped worshiping. We got busy and uh, we stopped tending to the priorities of God. We got busy and we got disacquainted with the story of God. That's not a problem today though. But, you know, back then, you know, people neglected the Sabbath and, you know, I'm being sarcastic. We will honor the year of Jubilee. We'll make sure that every debt is canceled every seventh year. This way, there's not exploitation happening between one and another, that whatever deal you have to make, you better make sure it resets on that seventh year. Nobody's going to be a slave forever to somebody else and and beholden to somebody else uh, for their life, anyone other than God. We'll carry out the proper services that are needed within the house of God. We'll give the offerings that we're due to give. There's a whole list of offerings. We'll honor the festivals that are appointed in the law. We will give the first reach. We're going to start tithing. You know, our crops, our vineyards, our flocks, our herds. We will dedicate even our firstborn sons in service to God. Imagine that. You know, your firstborn, like the most important thing in your family is that you're going to make sure one of your offspring is fully devoted and is going to serve God. We're going to give our firstborn to you, God. We will fulfill our duties. You hear all the good intentions? Nehemiah 12.39 is kind of a, maybe a summary We will not neglect the house of our God. I want you to think of a time when you became clear-eyed about the mercy, the faithfulness, the goodness, the greatness, the love of God, and you were at that fever pitch moment, and you were excited, and, and, and you wanted to do better, and you were like, 
Would you ever dare make a vow before a holy and righteous God? Have you ever made such a vow? But I have another question, and that is, would it matter if you did? Would it matter if you did? I was thinking about the ministry and life of Jesus, and uh, there is that moment when Jesus told his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem to suffer and be crucified and die. And it's kind of a, an alarming statement to the disciples. They're like, you know. And Peter, you know, Peter's awesome. You know, in Luke twenty-two thirty-three, Peter says, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. I am, a, I am radically loyal to you, you know. Uh, radical, I'm going to be a radical disciple, right? But the Lord tells Peter, like the very next verse, you know, he just deflates the balloon. Peter, you're going to betray me three times today. You're going to deny that you even know me three times today before the rooster even crows. You talk about breathing reality into somebody, popping their balloon. You know, Peter's full of steam, and then he's like, what? I'm going to do what? I wonder how God in his righteousness sees our well-intentioned vows and pledges and binding agreements, you know, for blessings, for curses, however we word them, whatever we say. When I was reading this, I was like, are they worth the paper they're written on? Are they worth the wax that is used to seal the agreement? You know, wax melts, it's pretty, you know. Uh, Will will our commitments, are they any more sound than than melting wax? I don't know. But all these people, they write their names down. And they're binding themselves to God. And they're not much different than, than us in some ways. Because this is what religious people do. You know, are, are our vows before God anything more than hollow boasts? You know, sensing the hollowness of our character, sensing the limitations of our flesh, sensing the power of our own struggle against the flesh, our inability to master the flesh and, and live rightly for God. You know, sometimes when we feel there's a, a, a gap in our character, we overcompensate by making grander statements and grander vows and, and doubling down. You know, are our vows before God anything more than hollow boasts? Naive at best, arrogant at worst. Peter, I will go to the death with you, Jesus. I'll go to prison. I'll die with you. Jesus saw through Peter's vow just a few hours into the future, and he tells Peter, The day's not going to end before you fail again and fail really big. How are we to navigate this relationship with God? When we come to terms with him, we make a vow, but then we're going to fail again. And before the end of the day, you know, you go to church and you feel a little bit of revival. But then on the way home in the car, you get in a fight with your spouse or your kid and they get ugly. And it's just like, oh. I failed again. When I was a child attending church camp, they'd always, you know, church camp's awesome. You go to a week of CIY, there's always these, you go to a conference and you're with all these folks and everybody's like-minded and the preaching's powerful and convicting and the, the music, everything's focusing you, you know, 
every moment of every hour, you know, for a day or two or for a whole week, depending on how long it is, mission trip, whatever, it's all God, 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 and God, you, and you, and, and you, you reach this fever pitch, you know, and at the end of the week, there's always kind of a, a rededication that happens where you go forward and you make a, a visual public commitment of sorts to your God. Well, one time the leaders at a week of camp had us write a letter to our future selves in that moment, which I thought was a stroke of brilliance. And uh, they said, later this summer, you're going to forget the commitments that you're making today. The emotion is going to wear off. The routine of your life is going to set in. You're going to forget where you're at right now. Write down what you would say to your future self and seal it in an envelope. And later this summer, when you forget, we will mail that envelope to you and you can read a letter from your present self to your future self. And I was like, I'm going to forget. I'm on the mountaintop. I got a spiritual high. I'm making this vow before God. I'm going to do better than I've ever done before. And sure enough, later that summer, I got, a, I got a letter from somebody, and I was like, ugh. Do our flimsy vows matter for much of anything to a holy and righteous God? In Nehemiah 11, all the people, they settle into this large and, and spacious city. It's a new beginning, a new creation, kind of like in the, after the aftermath of Noah, the aftermath of Babylon, you know, there's a fresh start. God always, like, day of Pentecost. There's all these moments of renewal and rededication and, and, and the, the clouds clear and everybody has clarity and, and they're celebrating and they settle into this city. Are they going to become a city? You know, you can see all the names. Like, you go to Nehemiah 11 and 12, there's a whole other set of names. You have all these people make these agreements, but all these residents... This larger group, the crowd is now showing up. And, and you see all their names of all the people that are coming. They want a fresh start, a new beginning. And, and religion seems to promise that, but often fails to deliver that. But people are coming for the promise, and they're excited, and they believe things are going to be different, and there's going to be a new future. And, and you can imagine, you know, what happens when the routine of life starts to set in again. When you're no longer reading the law for a quarter of the day and confessing your sins for a quarter of the day and nobody's thinking about work and you realize, oh, we've got to go back to work. You know, we've got to... Will the people remember? Will they honor their pledges and agreements? Will they be taken by surprise later in the summer when the mail comes first class, months later to remind them of some... You know, at the end of Nehemiah 12, it's awesome. The people dedicate the wall of Jerusalem. There's this raucous kind of celebration. They seek out all the Levites that they can find. This is what, uh, you know, whenever a church is dedicating something, you know, they get all the ministers. They line us all up, you know. You got to get them all, you know, freak show. Get them all, get them all in there. You know, all the Levites, they gather them up from every nook and cranny out there. You know, they bring them to Jerusalem, verse 27, Nehemiah 12. They celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and they break out the cymbals and harps and, and all the instrumentation. Like it's all, it's full on, right, when there's a dedication. Musicians were brought together from all around Jerusalem. Verse 30, 
The priests and Levites purify themselves ceremonially. They purify the people, the gates, the walls. They're sprinkling water or maybe blood on, on everything, you know. Nehemiah assembles two of the largest choirs that have ever been assembled in recent memory. And one goes to the left on the wall and the other goes to the right on the wall in opposite directions. I mean, this is a spectacle. In Nehemiah 12.43, I mean, I love all these little. On that day, the people offered great sacrifices. They were rejoicing because God had given them great joy. And the women and children also rejoiced. And the sound of rejoicing could be heard far away. Frame of reference for me, I grew up in a small town. Anybody from small towns? You know, if you live in a small town, uh, you remember what happens every Friday night. The football fields would be lit up. The roar of a crowd, the marching band playing, cheerleaders, the choir of students chanting various victory cries. If you weren't in there, you were aware of what was going on in there, even miles away. You could hear it. You could see the glow of the lights and hear all of that ambiance miles away. Sometimes I'd sit in my room and I could hear it. I could tell like, hey, we're winning, we're losing. You know, you could tell what was going on. But only instead of celebrating football. The people of God are celebrating their Lord. They're celebrating God. They're not celebrating football. They're celebrating their God. This is a spectacle unlike anything that anybody had seen in recent memory. And I asked these two questions earlier. The first question is, would I ever make a vow to a holy God binding myself with curses should I happen to fail? Is that what that moment demands? And my answer to that is, and for us, is that we don't have to. God, I'm really, really, really serious this time. How many times have you said those words to yourself? I know I failed last time, last week, yesterday, this morning, in the car, as I walked up to the church, in the lobby, even when I sat in the pew, I said, you know, I know I failed last time, but this time is going to be different. I promise, promise, promise. Scott's honor, whatever, right? In Jesus' day, people, sensing the hollowness of their vows, the hollowness of their own characters, the realities of their own track records of failure, people would try to bolster their vows before God and men by swearing against their own head, against the temple, against the gold on the temple. They could get really creative. And they were like, man, if I swear on my mama's grave or some, you know, we do the same thing, but it was, they had their own ways that they swore as a way to bolster arbitrarily, you know, their character, to try to make God like, God, I want you to know I'm really taking you seriously. Here's my words. Or I want everybody else to really notice what's going on. Here's my word. You know, Jesus released us from the tyranny of words. The tyranny of our own well-intentioned vows. When he spoke these words in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, verse 33, he says, you know, you've heard that it was said to our ancestors, you better not break your oath, but you must keep your oath to the Lord. That's religion, by the way. You make an oath, you keep it. And if you don't, 
you're going to have hell to pay. You've heard this, but I tell you, don't take an oath at all. Either by heaven, because it's God's throne, or by earth, because that's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because that's the city of the great king. And don't swear by your head, because guess what? You can't make a single hair white or black. You can't even make a single follicle grow. All right? So, like, let your yes be yes. That was an extra one I threw in. But let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. And if you go any further than that, anything more than that is from the evil one. It's from the evil one. It's not what God would have you say. It's what the evil one the evil one wants to hold us under shame and guilt and oppression and fear and the yoke of the law. The evil one would have us bind ourselves under the weight of guilt and shame and curse and fear. That's how the evil one loves religion. But God might have us do something different. I don't think God likes word silence. Uh, have you ever seen a person who failed in some way and in an effort to bolster the relationship or salvage the relationship, they just make promise after promise and they try to convince you of their sincerity and it's words, 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 right? And you're like, your words don't hit me. They don't affect me because I see your character. And just as you are dissatisfied with a person that's trying to upsell themselves with vows and, and, and gestures of sincerity. It doesn't, you don't buy it. I don't think God buys it either. God's not looking for us to babble like pagans and to uh, come up with word style. Ecclesiastes 5.2. Do not be quick to speak. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter a word, even a word before God. After all, God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Religious people believe their words are everything, but they're really not much of anything. Words do not bolster our standing, our integrity, our righteousness before God. If you confess something with your lips, even something really great like Lord, Lord, but you don't really believe it sincerely in your heart, you got a problem. <laughs> you see, God sees through our words right into our future. And no amount of words is ever going to change this one fact, that the same grace you needed today will be the same grace you need to sustain you tomorrow. The same grace that brought you today is going to be the same grace that's going to deliver you tomorrow. You're never going to outgrow your need for grace. You're never going to achieve. You're never going to be at some place where you're not going to need God's grace. You see, these people that we're reading about in Nehemiah's chapter 10 and 11 and 12, pretty long list. These people would fail yet again. And they would need the same grace again and again and again and again. In fact, if you were to do the Nehemiah 9 confession, fast forward 10 years, the people that we see gathered here in Nehemiah 10 and 11 and 12 throwing us party, you could add yet another paragraph to the Nehemiah confession 
And the Lord regathered us and we rededicated and he helped us build the wall and you know, he sent Tobiah and all these folks packing and, and God did, and, and yet we became stiff-necked again. Like, they would need grace again and again, even after this high point. Little did these people realize that in Christ, God would soon release them from the very curses they were willing upon themselves. I'm religious. I'm sincere. I'm going to do this, God. I bind myself with an oath and a curse. Even that we need to be released from. And in Christ, we are released from the curse of our own words, the failures of our own oaths and pledges and vows, if you can imagine. Galatians 3.10, everyone who relies on the works of the law are under a curse. If you want to be religious and you want to make it about works, and your own self-righteousness, you making yourself righteous before a holy and righteous God. Who's truly, he's the real thing. You're the, the poser. If you want to do that, everyone who relies on that law-based approach, which Jews with Judaism, often, not always, but often Catholics with Catholicism, often Islam under the yoke of, uh, of Islam, often Protestants, uh, who haven't detoxed themselves from a works-based philosophy. If you want to rely on works, you're under a curse because it's written. Well, if you, if you want to do that, if you don't do everything, everything, and, and by everything it means everything, written in the book of the law, you're under a curse if that's the way you want to relate to God. Swing for the fences. Listen, it's not that we don't deserve death for our sin. It's not that we don't deserve to be cursed for failing in our vows before God. It's just that God in his grace, mercy, doesn't demand we pay sin's curse. He doesn't demand that we pay death. Our gospel just declares a freedom that is transcends all religion. It's Galatians 3.11. The righteous live by faith, contrasted with works. We live by faith. We live trusting something else. Well, what is it? Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it's written curses everyone who is hung on a tree. Christ takes the curse. Christ takes the death. Christ takes the shame, the guilt, the punishment, the yoke. We have this amazing gift. God chose to take our curse upon himself that we would be released from sin and sin's wage, death. We're no longer cursed by our failed vows and hollow words. We're saved by the faithfulness of Christ himself, by the power of the living word who became flesh and stood on our place and took the cross that we deserved. We deserved death, but instead God willed us life. And he said, if you would trust what I'm giving you, instead of trusting what you're trying to be apart from me, if you trust this gift, you will have life and life everlasting. It's completely irreligious. I mean, it's different. You know, baptism. Baptism. The Christian church, uh, Lakeside, we practice baptism. And did you know that one of the ways that baptism is described in 1 Peter 3, you can look it up, is that it's a pledge of allegiance. So it, in some ways, 
mimics or mirrors a little bit of what we see in Nehemiah chapter 10, 11, and 12, which is this. The Christian churches are often said to practice adult baptism by immersion, but a better way to say it more precisely is we practice a baptism of those who have understanding. So when they made an agreement back in the day in Nehemiah and Jerusalem, people who were of understanding, sons, daughters, young, old, if you were of understanding, you could have your name written down. You could enter into an agreement. And you couldn't bind somebody else against their will. That's why we don't uh, practice baptism uh, by like where the parents, where the priest makes the vow on behalf of uh, the infant or the child or whatever. You know, you can't bind somebody. It's, it's your faith. It's your response. And, and we see that consistently in Scripture. And when a person's of understanding, maybe it's a six-year-old, maybe it's a nine-year-old, maybe it's a 13-year-old, who knows. But, uh, but you make this pledge of allegiance and baptism. And some people imagine that when they're baptized, they're vowing never to disappoint nor fail God ever again. So when I was thinking about getting baptized, I waited a little while because I wasn't going to sin again after I got baptized. I was going to make sure that I cleaned myself as much up as I could. And I wanted to make sure that when I meant it, it was really going to be like, there was kind of that toxicity to the, the pledge, right? I'm never going to disappoint nor fail God again. I'm not going to say another cuss word, even under my breath again, ever, or whatever it was, you know. But then when people and I lapsed later in life, what happens? You doubt the sincerity or the legitimacy of your earlier confession, and you say something to yourself like, you know, I really, I, I didn't really mean it back then. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just a child. And after that, you know, I've sinned so much and I've failed so much and I've disappointed God so much. And, you know, I think I need to be rebaptized again. But for real this time. I mean, I need to get rebaptized because I'm really, really, I promise, 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 this time is going to be different. That's how religious people see baptism. But I want to tell you something that I've learned about baptism. And that is that baptism isn't a vow that you're never going to fail again. Baptism isn't an agreement where you bind yourself with a curse. Uh, baptism is a vow that you're going to live by grace. Baptism is a vow that you're going to trust God for his grace. And you're going to keep welcoming his purifying Holy Spirit presence in your life from now until the day you draw your last breath. In baptism, you're saying, God, I pledge to live under your grace, not just yesterday, not just today, but forever and always. I pledge to live by your grace again and again and again. This isn't the last time I'm going to be standing before you begging for bread. I pledge to live by your grace again and again. The righteous will live by such faith and trust. I accept your death in my place. The righteous for the unrighteous. I bury my old self in the water. I'm as good as dead. I allow you to raise me up and you to seat me in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Thank you for taking whatever curses and death I deserve and raising me up to stand with you, with your righteousness, clothing me. Thank you 
for giving me the life I don't deserve. You know, that's a different view of baptism than I think a lot of people have. That is a declaration of your lifelong need for dependency on the grace of God. That's what baptism should be. And if later in life you realize that you needed more grace than you ever needed before because you become even, then you are living into your baptism. Congratulations. You're living into grace. You're living by faith, trusting something beyond yourself, beyond your works and ability. You're trusting what God gives you as a gift. Congratulations. You know, Peter, when Jesus wanted to wash the disciples' feet, he comes to Peter, and the Lord says, uh, uh, Peter, you know, take your shoes off, you know, take your sandals off. I got to, and Peter's like, you're not washing my feet. You know, you're not doing that. And Jesus tells Peter, you know, if I don't, do this, you'll have no part in me. So then Peter, he goes, well, I'll take everything. I'll give me a bath. Whoa, you know. <laughs> you're already clean. You know, you're clean not by virtue of your works. You're clean by virtue of you being in me. You know, you've, you've pledged yourself to me. You've given yourself already to me. And uh, you're already clean in that sense. But you need to have your feet washed because... Your feet are dirty from walking in the world. And to me, that's like the difference maybe between baptism and communion. You know, we don't keep getting baptized and we don't need a full bath again. But communion, you know, we come and we say, you know, I need grace this week. I need grace next week. And I need grace the week after. And I've already made the the pledge and I'm already married to you, Lord. But I need your grace to sustain me day in and week in and week out and year after year after year. In communion, we're not saying, I really, really mean it this time. I'm never going to need your grace again because, man, I have, a, I have reached a pinnacle here. You know, in communion, the right spirit is to humble ourselves and say, thank you for the gift, Lord, and I'll thank you again next week because nothing's going to change about our need for grace. And when you understand what we're talking about here, you've understood the difference between religion and a relationship, between works and true grace, between faith and self and faith in God's provision. You know, these people worshipped raucously because they got to a place where they understood the grace of God. And they had not even yet contemplated the cross. We've got the cross, which gives even greater clarity to the power of God's grace and the extent of it. How ought we not worship even more raucously than they? How are we not filling even bigger stadiums, you know, uh, and, and greater spaces with the praise and celebration of God in light of what he's done in Christ? It's grace that God uses as a basis for relationship with himself. And we praise God and thank him that he's released us from the curse of our own words even and given us true freedom in that. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for grace. Thank you for breaking your body. Thank you for shedding your blood instead of ours. Thank you for keeping your word to us in Christ because we didn't keep our word. Thank you for demonstrating faithfulness in spite of our unfaithfulness. Thank you for giving us grace again and again, for giving us access to everlasting grace, abundant grace, like living water out of the ground. It's, it's, It's unexhaustible. Thank you for giving us grace for our thirsty souls. Thank you for raining down more bread from heaven than we could ever 
you give us just enough for a day and you give us some for tomorrow and the next day. And, and the grace for today is not the grace for tomorrow, but you just fill us with your righteousness. You're the bread of life to us. Thank you that we come to you to receive a gift, not achieve a gift. We worship you in light of this grace. Uh, and we give ourselves to you for grace and, and for renewal daily. We pray uh, this be our pledge in Jesus' name. Amen.